I am glad that you guys uh, made a point to be with us uh, this morning on this day after Christmas. And again, for those of you online, we're glad that you've joined us either, whether, whether it's this morning or sometime here in the future. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but one of my favorite times uh, as a child in school uh, was show and tell. I don't know if they still do show and tell. I'll take a survey here in a little bit. I just loved those days. And for me and my elementary experience, really show and tell was a staple from kindergarten all the way through. I can even remember doing it in early sixth grade. And what would usually happen at the beginning of the school year, the, the teacher would assign us a day when we would get to bring something in from home show it and tell about it. And, and I can just remember as a kid, I can visualize even some of those classroom experiences even now, just sitting in a circle and someone coming to the front of the class or to the front of our circle and just pulling something out of their pocket or reaching into a backpack and, and sharing something that was meaningful to them from home. Sometimes it was a photograph, sometimes it was an object, sometimes it was a, a recent gift, sometimes, sometimes it was a, a family heirloom, something of a, a father or a mother or a grandparents. And I just loved hearing the story of where that came from and why it was so meaningful. So I guess, first of all, do they even still do show and tell anymore? Anybody have kids? Can you give me some nods? Do they still do that? Our deprived children, holy cow. They do? Okay. How many of you did show and tell as a kid, just by show of hands? Awesome. So we're all tracking together. I'm guessing that a little bit of show and tell is happening in our kids' environments, uh, even this morning, and it will happen in the coming weeks as people return from Christmas break and everybody's in the room together, because kids just get excited about something they did and someplace they went and, and something that they got. And I know as a parent, sometimes our fear is, especially when they're younger, is that what they brought, is it going to be dangerous? Is it going to be incriminating? Like, uh, are they going to yank a live thing, a mouse or something out of their pocket and show it with the world? Did they hide the kitten in their pack on the way to church this morning? But we, we, we know that they're probably showing and telling. And I think if we're honest, whether you're a teenager, a young adult, uh, a middle-aged adult, or an elderly adult, uh, we still like show and tell, and I'm guessing that even this morning, maybe in one of the lobbies, or maybe if you got here a little bit early, uh, you were sharing about some of your experiences, maybe from yesterday, uh, maybe from the week leading up to Christmas, uh, maybe even you got out your phone and you showed a few pictures to someone of the people that you were with. We still like show and tell. There's just something in us as people that when we experience something exciting, when we see something incredible, when we receive a gift that just floors us, not necessarily because it's a high-priced gift, but because it was so meaningful, we just have to tell somebody. When we get excited about things, we want to tell other people. We want to tell people about changes that have taken place in our lives. We want to tell people about uh, other people that we've met. Uh, we, maybe you've had this experience. You experienced something really incredible. You received something. You did something. You, you got a promotion. You had an accomplishment. And you got in the car. One of the first things you did is you had to call somebody. You had to tell them about what happened. There's something in us as people when something good happens, something great happens, we want to tell others. Well, what's the criteria for that? Like, like, how do you know this is something that is so good, I have to tell other people about it? Like, we have some process we go through, like, yeah, this isn't worth calling my husband about. Nah, I shouldn't tell my kids. But there are other things like, yep, I got to tell somebody right now about what's happening. We've been exploring God's grace this Advent season. 
The title of our teaching series is Grace, A Christmas Story. We're looking at this loving kindness of God that's been poured out. Uh, The expression of sending his son is loving kindness, it's grace. But Jesus himself, we're told in John 1, is full of grace and truth. We've just been exploring all the grace that we see and find and experience in Jesus. And we've been doing it through the lens of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul gives this beautiful, simple summation of the gospel that great message about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's still doing, what he will do, and and how we're to respond to that. And then he turns his attention in verse 15 and reminds Titus, listen, what I've just told you, other people have to know about. Like this should transform your life to the point you have to tell us. This should be so good for you, you can't wait to share it with someone else. And so I'd like to recap by reading and revisiting those words one last time in Titus chapter 2 before we spend time examining verse 15. Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, the loving kindness of God, the unmerited favor of God has appeared, it's been revealed, we can see it, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now look at verse 15. Paul says to Titus, writes to Titus, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Paul recounts that beautiful message about God's grace that we call the gospel. He says, yes, it has come. And yes, it rescues us from sin, but it does even more than that. It it, it continues its work in us. Jesus has modeled it. He sustains it by his spirit. It teaches us what to say no to. I'm gonna say no to the ungodliness and the worldly passions and as God works in me, he's gonna create a self-controlled, upright and godly person right now, today, in this age, even while I'm waiting for things to be made new, for wrongs to be righted, for Jesus to return. And because of that, my life's gonna be characterized by doing good things. And what's the response from there? All right, here's the grace. Here's the grace that transforms And so Paul writes to Titus, these are the things you are to teach. That word teach in the original language Greek is is not the kind of classroom instruction term. It simply means to speak and to tell. These are the things you're to talk about. These are the things that you are to tell others about. You tell others about the grace of God that appeared. You tell others about the grace of God that changed you, that transformed you, that continues to teach you, that the grace of God that helped you kind of leave these choices that were hurting you and harming you, the ungodliness and the worldly passion and this new way of living that's, that's characterized by the self-control and the upright behavior and the godliness. Like These are the things you tell others about and you tell others about how you're able to do that today, even while you wait for his appearing, his second coming. 
You tell others about the good that he's called you to do in this world. They see the good that you are doing in this world. That's what you're supposed to tell others. These are the things you teach. These are the things that you tell. When we experience transformation, we ought to tell others. I shared a few weeks back that it's amazing how in so many of our Christmas stories that we like, that they're stories of transformation. I referenced It's a Wonderful Life and Scrooge and even Home Alone to some degree and the movie Elf, and they tell these stories of transformation. But as you look at them, have you noticed that when people are transformed, they can't wait but to tell others about it? Just take It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey has the encounter with the, the guardian angel, and his life is near its end. He's ready to end it, and through his experience, he's changed. And when you watch the end of that movie, he can't wait but to tell everyone he encounters, especially his family, about the transformation that has happened in his life. Or take the classic story of the Christmas Carol. We see Ebenezer Scrooge come face to face with who he has been and where he's headed, and he has changed. And when Christmas morning comes, he takes to the streets and can't wait but to tell others about what he's experienced. And no, no surprise to you, I've said one of my favorite Christmas movies, it's not the favorite, but one of my favorites is Elf. And I know some of you loathe that movie and some of you love that movie, but there's this scene that I, I just love in Elf where Buddy the Elf, played by Will Ferrell, walks into the high-rise office of his father and he has encountered a woman that has changed his life. He's encountered a woman at Gimbel's and she has changed him. He is in love. And so he just comes in the room and he throws off his scarf. And he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. He's transformed. He can't help but share and to tell about what he has experienced. If we have experienced the loving kindness, the grace, the transforming power of Jesus, if we have been rescued from our sin and rescued to a life of purpose and meaning and hope, Shouldn't that be something that we can't wait to tell others about? Something that we have to share with others about the Jesus that has changed us and transformed us? This is the story we see in Scripture. Let's look at the beginning of Jesus' life. We'll, we'll look at Luke chapter 2. That, that famous part of the Christmas story where the angels appear to shepherds in a field and they proclaim that, that Jesus is coming, the Messiah has been born Here's the shepherd's response, Luke chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They go, they see, they experience, and then what do they have to tell? 
they have to tell the message that they've heard. And what's that message? You can go back up to verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This one you've been waiting for, this one who will rescue, this one who will redeem, this one who we've been anticipating, who will restore, he has come. That's the message they heard. They went and saw it for themselves. They experienced it. And then they had to tell others. John chapter 4, as, G, as John records Jesus' life, he looks to something fairly early in Jesus' ministry, an encounter he has with a woman at a well in Samaria, Jacob's well of all places, and the encounter shapes the woman so much that she just has to tell. But instead of reading that account for you, um, I think the people over at The Chosen, the television series, have done an incredible job of capturing this passage. And so check out uh, John 4 through the eyes of The Chosen. Salome's bread last night. Master, we need to go into town for food. We can use the gold left for us at the fountain. Very well. There's a town about a mile west. Sikar. You all go. I'll wait here. Someone should stay with you. In case. I'm all right. Meet me at that well when you come back. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, would you ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? And a woman? I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon. 
in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Wood. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband, then come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity, 
was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. You promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> You forgot your arm. You know how many, how many, no matter how many times I see that clip or read that story, I'm just amazed at how one person transformed and impacted by the grace of God. Uh, just has to tell others. And if you read on in John chapter 4, um, it says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of her testimony. Because she chose to tell about what she had seen and what she had heard. But you can fast forward to uh, near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and you can see the same thing in Matthew chapter 28, what we commonly call the Great Commission. Jesus is gathered as 11 disciples are on uh, this, this plateau or mountain with him, and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These men who have experienced him, these men who have been changed by him, he says, now you go, and you tell other people. You teach other people. You help them experience what you have experienced. 
And then just a few days later, as he's preparing to ascend to the Father, he's gathered with a group of followers, the 11 and others, and he, he shares with them these words. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. A witness. What is a witness at its core? It's someone who shares about what they have seen and what they've heard. And what do we see in the early days following Jesus? That his people took him seriously. They told about what they had seen and what they'd heard. In fact, there's this encounter in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are arrested. And they're, they're grabbed and they're pulled before the religious leaders. And they're told to no longer instruct people in his name. And Peter and John's response is this in Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. Um, they say, you know, it's, is it better for us to follow you or follow man? As for us, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and what we've heard. They had to tell someone again and again and again and again. Will we be people who have experienced the grace, the grace that has appeared, that has offered salvation to all people, the grace that still teaches us and shows us what to leave behind and say no to and what to turn to and say yes to, that helps us do that right now in this age, even while we wait through hardship and trial? Will we be people who are transformed and do good things and just have to tell others what we've experienced? Will I tell others? Will you tell others? Will we as his body, both here in Lebanon and around the world, tell others what we have seen and what we've heard? Well, what often stands in our way? I think Paul addresses some of this to Titus. If you look at those words, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. I think sometimes what stands in our way is we don't feel like we have the authority to tell others. We don't think we know enough about him yet, or we've not been changed enough by him. We're reminded of our past. We're reminded of our shame. We're reminded of the sin that still so easily entangles us. And we're like, God's got to use somebody else. He can't use me just yet. I don't have the authority to do that. And we need to hear the words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go. He is, he is giving his authority to them. We who respond to Jesus in faith have his spirit inside of us. His authority rests in us and on us, and we can go. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus. You don't have to know everything there is to know about the Bible. You can help somebody else come to follow him and experience him just by sharing what you have seen and what you've heard. And as you learn more and you see more, you can share more and tell more. You have the authority. And there's a world in need of people who will be bold and courageous and go and tell what they've seen and what they've heard. Sometimes what stands in our way is opposition. We feel that people will be opposed to us. And I know that in our uh, climate right now, a cancel culture and being politically correct, it feels like there is a rising opposition to sharing and teaching the things of Jesus and the words of God. What does Paul tell Titus? Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. You can't control if someone is opposed to you because of your faith. But what you can control through the power of his spirit is whether or not that keeps you from continuing to tell his story. Will you tell what you have seen and what you've heard? 
This is not an open license to be rude and obnoxious. I've not met anyone yet who has been called into, brought into the story of Jesus and found their, uh, the, the saving faith in him uh, through someone standing on the corner with a bullhorn telling them how they're all gonna go to hell. I've not met a single person yet who has come to faith in Jesus because someone decided to take a self-righteous position and tell them everything they were doing wrong rather than loving them first. But I have met person after person, and many of you are these people who have responded to God and been invited into his story because someone cared enough about you to tell you about what they had seen and what they heard. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was a sibling, older or younger. Maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a neighbor, and they loved you. You knew They knew that you were for them, you cared about them, you weren't after them just as some gospel transaction to tell people how many people you've helped save, but you were after them because you loved them and you cared for them, you saw them as a valuable child of God, and you shared with them what you had seen and what you had heard. Disciple-making is built on relationships. The disciples themselves had a relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with others. We invest in them. We care for them, and we tell them boldly, courageously, sometimes very gently what we have seen and what we've heard. Who is it that you need to tell? Who is it that needs to hear about what you have seen and what you've heard? Who is it that needs to hear about how God has transformed your life and changed your life? Is it someone in your family, someone who lives in your house, someone who's left your home? Is it, is, is it someone in your working circle, your coworkers? Is it a neighbor? Is it a neighbor you need to intentionally build a relationship with to let them know you care about them as a human being that opens the door for you to tell them what you have seen and what you've heard? Who will you schedule coffee with this week? How can you build into the rhythm of your daily life just speaking about what you've seen and what you've heard? What if we practice this more with others and even more than talking about the Colts game last night, which by the way, they won, even more than talking about the weather, by the way, it's gonna be 64 tomorrow and some storms, even, even before talking about what you received for Christmas or what you did for Christmas, what if we place on a higher level just simply sharing in conversation what we've seen and what we've heard from Jesus? What if conversation on the dinner table included not just what we did that day, but what, what have you experienced with Jesus today? What have you experienced this week? What's he doing in your life? Would that create a, a momentum to where we could talk about that more casually and more regularly with other people who may not know the hope that we have and the hope that we hold? Who needs to hear? Do you understand that disciple making and God's people sharing is God's plan to reach the world? Until the gospel is told in every nation, then the end will come. We're to tell. We're to go everywhere and to tell everyone. If you're not yet a disciple of Jesus and you want to know what we have seen and what we've heard, I'd encourage you to reach out to someone you know is a disciple. If you don't have that person in your life, then I'd encourage you to, to come talk to one of the ministers, to, to, to email us at connect at lebanonchristian.org, especially if you're at home, to, to scan a QR code in our building to let us know how we can help you, that we can help you experience what we have, this life-transforming, enabling, equipping grace of God. I want to pray over you, and I want to pray over those of you that already know Jesus and who you will tell, and I want to tell you a final story after that. God, I thank you 
I thank you for your grace. The words running through my head right now, Father, are from the old hymn. Uh, Grace, grace, your grace. uh, Grace that's greater than all my sin. God, you, you have extended grace to us, every one of us. And I pray, Father, that if there are those listening right now or watching or present in this space that have not yet responded to your love, that you'd give them the courage to reach out, to talk about you, to, to ask questions about you, to discover who you are, their lives might be brought into your life. God, I pray for the disciples in this room, and there are many of them, that you would encourage them to be men and women, young and old, who tell about what they have seen and what they've heard. God, help us. In your name we pray. Amen. In just a few moments, we're going to sing Go Tell It on the Mountain again. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about that song. Oftentimes it shows up on bluegrass and country albums and uh, it's got a little bit of a twang or a banjo in the background and we think that that song is maybe a country or bluegrass origin, a folk origin of some sort. But do you know that this song was first discovered in the mid-19th century, around in the early 1850s? The song was found being sung from plantation to plantation in the South. We don't know who wrote it, but it was sung by men and women, young and old, who had not experienced the freedom that we have, who, who didn't have the rights that we have, and yet they couldn't help but sing about what Jesus Christ was doing in their lives. They couldn't say a lot of things, they couldn't do a lot of things, but one thing they were sure of, they could go tell it on the mountain what Jesus had done. Will you and I do the same? Will you sing this with us? Please stand.